Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you. Happy anniversary to our church. Um, this is a special day. You know, it's, it's a day, you know, just like all birthday anniversary kind of things are. But it's, it's unique when you think about it as a church, um, because this is uh, this is the church is important. The church is the, the means by which God uh, makes himself known in the world, you know, other than through his uh, his written word. The church is God's uh, vehicle that he uses to advance the kingdom of God. And so we celebrate uh, the transit church, not because it's uh, important or anything outside of God, but particularly because there is a church gathering, a church of Jesus Christ gathering where there was none three years ago, and we honor, him, we honor God for it, not, uh, not any, any man in particular. And uh, I'm excited uh, that you all are here. So we're going to be in uh, Exodus today. We are continuing our series in the Ten Commandments, we're looking at the moral laws of God, what those are, what happens when we violate it, uh, all those kinds of things. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus 20. We're looking at the Second Commandment today. If you are with us for the first time, uh, there is a Bible under the center aisle of seats. If you don't have one, it looks like this. And uh, if you need it, go ahead and ask somebody to pass it down to you. It's going to be on about page 40. Exodus chapter 20, we're going to look at three verses today. Exodus 20 verses 4 through 6. We're going to read these out loud together as we start. And uh, if you want to cheat, they'll be on the screen. Read with me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the, uh, um, these people who are here representing your church. We're reminded this morning, because we're meeting in a school, your church is not a building. It's not a, a facility. It's not any kind of entity with a steeple on top. Your church is people. And it's through those people that, uh, and, and their testimony, the witness of their lives, that you want to make yourselves known to the, to the earth, to the world around us. And we thank you for doing that uh, in Transit Church, a church that really began with just a few families and has, uh, has come to this point in our life. We thank you for your word today. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to what you want to speak to us individually, but more importantly, what you want to speak to us corporately. Lord, we come to these commands uh, in that they're in the Old Testament, and uh, sometimes we wonder what, uh, how they can be applicable to us, uh, what, uh, what God says in an Old Covenant, uh, what does that have to do with us, and I pray that you would Help us, help us in that regard to see why these are important for us even today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So it's hard to look at any rule, but particularly uh, these rules, the Ten Commandments, and not be taken aback uh, when you read them. Even the first three words of, of our text today uh, kind of pushes back on you. Uh, look at the first three words. It says, you shall not. And I mean, think about what you do when someone tells you what not to do. I mean, I'm looking at all y'all. I know most of you. And it's that reaction that's in us when, when either someone tells us what not to do or even when someone just tells us what to do. There's something in us that pushes back against that. We resist that. We don't like those kinds of, of things happening towards us. And in fact, in many cases, we do the exact opposite. Say you're working on a project at work, and you spend a lot of time on it, you present it to your boss, and your boss doesn't like something about it, and they want you to change it. I mean, doesn't it just like, like, I don't want to change it. I, wanted to, I want you to receive it just like I did it, right? Don't we do that? We got some young people in the room. What, I mean, how do you feel when your parents walk in, and they're like, you need to clean up your room? There's something in us as young people that makes us just want to blow off our parents. Don't we do that? Yeah, most of y'all have grown up, but you blew off your parents at some point. And obviously, we got a few parents in the room. Uh, kids' bedtime, you put them in the crib, and you know, sometimes our kids just don't do what we say. They might start playing in their room, and that might be okay. But say your, your child gets out of the crib, 
comes down the steps and starts playing in defiance of everything that you've told them to do. Um, I, got, I got my own. Yeah, somebody said, oh, Lord. It, it happens, right? That was a true story from one of y'all in the, in the room. Um, so I got my own little personal pet peeve about people telling me what to do. Um, so I just hate it when worship leaders tell me to raise my hands. I love to raise my hands. And I'm not talking about my worship leaders, our worship leaders, because our worship leaders are perfect, right? <laughs> I'm talking about all those other people's worship leaders out there, outside of where we're gathering right now. But, you know, a worship leader, I mean, they're just, they want us to engage. They want us to participate in worship. And a lot of times the worship leaders say, so just, get, so just maintain a posture of, of receiving from the Lord. Am I like, I am receiving from the Lord. Can't you see I got my arms crossed? Or because or, I stand in the back as y'all are coming in. Some of y'all worship like this. You got a couple of, you got your mini God of Starbucks in your right hand. You got your, your, your left hand in your pocket. And all you're thinking about is like, I mean, I am worshiping. I mean, I don't know how I could be worshiping more than what I'm doing right now. Uh, here's the issue. Uh, none of us like authority. Uh, we don't like people telling us what to do, and definitely we don't like people telling us what not to do. It's part of the human condition that um, we don't like being told what to do, no matter who it comes from. Your professor, your boss, uh, your parents, your spouse. Uh, but what we see in Scripture is that Obedience to God completes us. Uh, we looked two weeks ago at the reason why. God is the ultimate authority. He's the creator. We're created. And because he created us, he has the rights to, to tell us what to do in regards to uh, his creation. Uh, but there's another thing, and this also gets set to something that we talked about a couple weeks ago. To understand God, you have to understand his law. God's laws, his rules, his commands are meant to convey his character. It, it is God telling us a little bit about who he is and about his worth. He's sharing that with us. And one of the words that God uses to convey his character to us and really to initiate relationship with us is the word covenant. Covenant is a binding agreement between us and God. And God conveys his covenants in, in kind of like two ways. He gives us blessings and curses. And sometimes we want to receive those blessings and, and not get the curses. But this is what we do as people. We take the blessings and, and we make those good things, the good things that God gives us, we take them and we make them the best thing. They become God in themselves. And that's the first commandment. He says, don't take a good thing and make it the best thing. Don't make it God. He says, don't do that. And then, of course, we get to... Uh, uh, the second commandment. So today we're getting into the second commandment, and it's about image. Um, it's political season. I found this quote that's very interesting to me from a political writer. He says, my experience of recent politics is being endlessly manipulated and spun by politicians. They care more about appearances than substance, and they want to win elections by concealing their substantive, uh, substantive views. Um, obviously, interesting quote. This was written a while ago. It wasn't written in regard to the current presidential season. But I would think that the, the, it's actually true to what we see happening right now in the political climate, definitely in our country. And because we're in a, a presidential election year, what's behind the reporter's words is the idea of, of image. And when you think about image, image is, is just a representation of something. But here's the thing about image. Uh, is it real or or is it just um, a representation of something that, that's not necessarily real? And we, we're left with this, with this idea of, I mean, am I looking at the real thing or is it, is it fake? Um, and really in this, we can criticize politicians all we want. Um, obviously, current day politicians, they do spin things. They do, tell us, they do choose to not tell us some of their views. Uh, and many of them do it so that we will elect them and they, and they get elected and they become who they want to. But I think the truth is we do this, too. We're people of image and we both reveal parts of ourselves, but we withhold parts of ourselves so that people can get a, a certain image that we're trying to portray. I think the culture that we live in today is, is definitely one of image. We're, we're, we are generations of people who will look in a mirror, we'll see ugly staring back at us, and we'll say, who did this to me? Right? I mean, don't you, I mean, aren't we like that? We'll blame somebody else for the things that we see in ourselves that we don't like. 
We live in a world of image and all of us at some level are putting forward a persona of ourselves that's partly true, but that's not 100 percent true. Can I get an amen? Amen. You're right. (laughs) And here's the here's the the wrong thing about that. We 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 project things about ourselves. But when when we when we project an image that's only partially true or or someone is putting an image on us, then what it does, it reduces us to whatever their their image or their persona of us is. It doesn't represent all of who we are. We imagine people being something they're really not. We think they're a certain way but we perhaps aren't paying attention or we're not listening enough to figure out who this person really is. And we do this in every area of our lives. We do it with our friends, we do it at work, we do it with our kids, we definitely do it on social media, we do it in marriage. We have two couples that are preparing to get married in our, in our congregation. I'm not gonna tell you who they are because they'll be embarrassed. Um, but just think about this when, you, when you're getting ready to get married. You put on your best clothes, you put on your best attitude, you go to the best places when you're dating. And, uh, and we, we develop images of the people that we are potentially going to propose to and get married. Say the relationship progresses, and what happens is you develop an image of the person to which you uh, hopefully uh, are going to be betrothed. And that's not a perfect image. There's going to be times where you really don't know um, 100% of the details about certain parts of a person's life. Say the relationship progresses and they get married. And here's the absolute truth. All of us in this room that are married, we don't marry the person that we think we're marrying. Can I get an amen for those of you who are married? And I'm not saying people live double lives. I mean, that, that, that happens, but that's, that's not what I'm saying. What happens is we've married an image. And when we get married, we're with that person a lot more than perhaps before we were married. And one of two things is going to happen. Either we're going to impose what our image of that person was on that person such that they feel pressured to, to match up to whatever our image of them is, or they're, got, they're just going to outright say, you got the wrong image of me, and, and tension is going to happen. And I would beg to say that uh, we have divorce in our country, and, and I mean, divorce, divorce is prevalent in our country because a person gets married to an image, a person that they, you know, they're projecting an image of who they need a person to be and who they want a person to be. And when it comes up that that person is not all those things and they're refusing to be all those things, they start freaking out and they want to get out of it. And that, I mean, that's the essence of divorce. I mean, why do we do that to other people? Why do we, why do we project these images on people? Some would say that when I project an image on someone, I, I just want the best for them. Look up, look up at me. That ain't it. Right? This is, this is, what, psycholo- this is what psychologists say. Psychologists say this is what we do. First, we're aiming uh, to protect ourselves. Uh, we, we image a person a certain way, and we put them in a box. And what we want to do is, is, is keep them in that box so that they don't get outside of us, outside of that box, and hurt us in any way further down the line. But there's something else that we do in regards to when we image people, when we imagine them being something, is we're trying to control them. Because if not, if I cannot, if I'd only not... Uh, this is the image I have of you, but if I can get you to conform to that image, what I have just done is it's not just put you in a box. I've, I've kept you there. And really, this is a part of our God complex. We want to be God. We want to make people in our image so that we can be in charge. And think about it. If we do that to our friends and people at work, if we do that to our kids, if we do that to our spouses, it stands a chance that we're also doing that with God. And that brings us to our text. Look at verse 4. You shall not have, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under 
the earth. And so our tendency is that we want a God who we can tell what we want him to do, not a God that tells us how his world works and how he's made us and what we should be what we should be doing, what he wants for us. And those are hard words for most of us to hear, especially if you have a heart that I really do want to to do what God says. But this is what the Bible says. The Bible says God reveals himself in a certain way. God has disclosed his character. He, he, he gives us purposes and plans for his world and for, for really all of creation. God gets to say what God, uh, God gets to say what God is, what he's like, instead of us saying what God is like. And that really is the difference between spirituality and, and revelation. And there's, you know, we're a mixed crowd here. There's some of you that perhaps might not even be a Christian and you would call yourself just, I'm just a person. There's some of you that would define yourself as being Christians, followers of Jesus, and there's probably others in here that are in the middle somewhere, and you probably call yourself uh, spiritual, spiritual people. Um, and so if we take this to the really the fullest conclusion, this is what this idea of the, the second commandment and image is saying. We can't worship God the way we think he wants to be worshipped. We're supposed to worship God the way he's revealed himself. Does that make sense? God is not who we think he is in our minds. Or when we look out and we see stuff, that's not necessarily who God is, although that helps us understand who he is. God is exactly who he's revealed himself to be. And so if we would compare the first and second commandment, it's important before we go on and check out the second commandment. The first commandment is about us not taking things, good things, and elevating them above the level of God. The second commandment is about us not reducing God and making him smaller than he is. The first commandment is about idolatry. He says, don't, don't take a God or a thing and elevate it to the level of God. The second commandment is about heresy. And, the, and heresy is, is false teaching about who God is and, and his ways. That's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about the, the heresy of, of reducing God and making him what he's, he's not. And if you look at history, definitely church history, every heresy always reduces God and it elevates the person behind the heresy. It elevates human beings. And so here's the second commandment. When God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, he's saying, um, he's saying don't reduce me. He's saying, do not Reduce me. But it's also saying a few other things. Um, look at verse four again. There's actually four things that God is saying in regards to the second commandment. And the first thing that he says is uh, is about a rule. He gives us a rule. And the rule is very simple. He says, don't make any carved images of God. And he's, he's pretty explicit here. He says, don't look in the heavens and craft something that's flying around and say it's God. He says, don't look at the ground and the, and the earth itself and create something that you're going to put in as an image of God and have it represent him. He's also saying, don't go to the seas and, and do the same. Pull up something swimming in the ocean uh, and, and call that God uh, as an image ref, uh, representing him. Um, in other words, he's telling the Israelites, don't take anything alive or inanimate and allow it to represent God in any form or fashion whatsoever. And this is why he needed to tell them that is because the the uh, the Israelites had just spent 400 years in Egypt as slaves. And here's the here's our propensity. When we're in Egypt for a long time, we're going to act like the Egyptians. Right. And the Egyptians were pagan people and they worshiped both animals and beasts and human beings as their God. And they had a God for absolutely every single thing. And so he says, don't do what the Egyptians have done. In fact, I'm sending you to a nation where there are Amorites and Jebusites and Hittites and Hivites, and they have both beasts and animals and inanimate objects as God, and I don't want you to do that. Don't represent me like that. Don't image me like that. And so that's the rule. But he also gives them a reason. And, and we could, God could have listed many reasons for the Israelites um, in regards to the second commandment not to make a carved image, but he only gives them one. He says, 
I'm a jealous God. Look at verse five. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, when we think of jealousy, we think of envy, right? Like, um, like I like, I got, I like what you're doing. I like what you got. And we take it one step further. We, we cover It's like, I, I want all that. Jealousy is, is in our perspective, it's just envy. When God says he's jealous, he's talking about love. He's talking about his zeal for his creation. Particularly, he's talking about his, his passionate love for the creation that he's made and the pinnacle of his creation that he made on the sixth day are people like you and me, human beings. And so really what God is, is, is giving them here is he's, he's saying you should be encouraged by this. Uh, I, I, we, have, we should have this expectation that God wants to protect those that are rightfully his. He wants to protect us because we're part of his creation. God not only loves us, but he also wants us to love him in return. And among other things, this means worshiping him in a way that's worthy of his honor. Because he's God, because he's creator and we were created, he has the right to tell us how he wants to be worshiped. He has the right to command us in that worship. And, and then um, he has the right to tell us, don't reject me by turning away from me in, in idolatry uh, or making an idol that you think looks like me. There's a rule. There's a reason. But he also gives them a warning. And we see that in verse five, the latter part of verse five. I mean, think about this. Because God is jealous, he gives them both a warning and a promise. We could spend a whole sermon on on this warning right here because of what most of us have been taught in in some church circles. Most of you will see these words and and see uh, generational curses coming out. Let's read the verse. He says, I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. We'll talk about it at some other time. All right. But basically, I mean, this is a curse and it's a curse on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, the, uh, the word says. Um, I, and for those of you who look at this and read that it's a generational curse, I, I'm going to try and convince you in like two minutes that it's actually not. That's not what's going on here. Uh, this is a warning against idolatry. Why? Because uh, idolatry is like hatred. When we take something that's not God and we say it is God, God is saying you're turning from me to something else, and that's as if you hate me. Uh, more than that, he says it's a perversion of, of the worship that he prescribes for us. It's a turning away from God, a hatred of him. Um, more than that, he says that when a, a parent, a father in particular, chooses not to worship God, it can be pervasive in the family. There is a qualifier in this one particular verse that sometimes we skip over. Here's what God says. He says that he'll visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Those are important words, of those who hate me. So God is not some arbitrary God that because the, the parents sin and they may not follow God, that he's going to automatically punish three or four generations of children just because a, a parent does not follow God. And here we need to do a little bit of biblical theology. Biblical theology looks at the, what the whole Bible says about a particular issue. And in this case, we can go to other scriptures, particularly Exodus 18, and see that God has said, all of us are judged individually for our sin. The man that sins shall die. And so if I sin, I'm responsible for my own sin. If you sin, you're responsible for your own sin. He goes on to, to add that a father is not going to be judged for his son or daughter's sin. A child is not going to be judged and punished, disciplined by God for their parents' sin. And so for that reason, we can't take one singular place in Scripture where it, where it looks like God is going to punish me because my parents don't follow the Lord. 
This makes the promise that he gives us in verse 6 even more important. Look at verse 6. He says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The promise is more powerful than the warning because its blessing lasts not just three or four generations, but thousands of generations. That's God's way of saying those who love the, the Lord, there's, a, there's an eternity of blessings that come from this. And this is in the likes of the blessing that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. I'll bless you to be a blessing. The nations of the earth are going to be blessed because of you. Um, and for those of you in this room, I mean, you're a testament to the, to the promise of this verse. If you have unbelieving parents that to this day don't follow God and you're here loving, serving, sowing in the kingdom of God, loving Jesus, then you're a recipient of the promise, not of the warning that comes before that, that says three or four generations of people uh, are going to be punished by God. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? All right, I spent too much time on that. So here's the thing. What happens when we break this commandment? What happens when we break this commandment? I'm going to tell you up front, and then we're going to look at an example. We break this commandment whenever we define God in our, in our heart as we want him to be rather than believing what he reveals himself to be. Turn to your right to Exodus 32. We're going to read of, I actually kind of see it as funny. Actually, God killed some people over this incident, so I guess it wasn't really funny. Exodus 32 is a familiar passage of, uh, of Aaron and uh, the Israelites making a golden calf. We're going to read just a few verses here. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and, uh, and said to him, Up, make gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to him, to them, Take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Verse 6. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Um, the connotation is I mean, not just revelry, but at the sight of this golden calf. I mean, they, not, they had a party. Really, they had an orgy. So, I mean, they were, they were like geared up to, to get in trouble. Let me give you some background. So Moses, they come to Mount Sinai. God is introducing himself to them. He's introducing the relationship, giving them the demands of the relationship by giving them the Ten Commandments. That's what we read in Exodus 20. But God doesn't just stop at the Ten Commandments. Exodus 21, Exodus 22, 23, 24, 25. God's giving all these commands to Moses. And obviously Moses captured what all those rules and commands were in the preceding verses. While Moses is gone, Moses is gone for 40 days, 40 nights, doesn't eat, doesn't drink. God is sustaining him and giving him all this revelation because these God is God is establishing a covenant with Israel. And Moses needs to be the he's going to be the the conveyor of this covenant. And there's a lot to it. That's why Moses is gone so long. So the, the Israelites are down and, you know, they're. They're in the middle of nowhere because in their hearts, they're like Egyptians. They've been living in Egypt for 400 years. They're out in the middle of nowhere and they want to know where Moses, their leader, is. And so this is what they do. It's like, all right, we got to do something. Moses is not coming back. Maybe like he didn't survive. Maybe God just smote him. And uh, and they come to Aaron because Aaron was the leader. Aaron was the the the, the priest. Uh, the would-be priest that that served along with Moses, and uh, they decide to um, to sort of like bring back a representation of God in the midst of them. All right, let's let's peel back the the onion of of that thought just a little bit. Um, the people are scared. They, I mean, they. I mean, think about it. You're in slavery. You're you're um, you're brought to a level of freedom, 
you see a God deliver you in some mighty ways, and, and, and literally he brings you to a mountain where he freaks you out because he shows you himself with fire and lightning and smoke, and you hear thunder, that's God's voice, and, uh, and, and Moses, your leader, is gone. And so they're in a predicament of, of not knowing what to do or knowing where they are. Uh, and they grasp for, for the only thing they know to do. Uh, they are in the ancient Near East. Uh, obviously, these pagan cultures uh, had images and symbols of, of strength. The Israelites were scared. They were in the midst of an environment where they could have been attacked by anybody, all the surrounding nations. And the bull itself is a picture of strength. And so they said, you know what, let's protect ourselves. Um, let's go ahead and, and, and do something to, to, to at least have a symbol of strength in our midst. Um, and I don't know why they did this in particular, but they just, you know, they just took the earrings off and any jewelry they found. And I think it's funny that uh, later on, Aaron, as he's uh, making the excuse to, to Moses, he said, I don't know what happened. The people started bringing me all their jewelry. I just threw it into the fire and out popped this, this, out popped this thing. And it was a calf. And we just thought we were supposed to, supposed to worship it. And so uh, here's the thing. They're not looking for a new God. They're not trying to dismiss God. They think this is what they're supposed to do. They think they're honoring God by making a, a calf and, and by worshiping it like they had seen other nations worship the ones around them. So this graven idol was supposed to represent God's strength so that they would feel uh, a little bit less scared and unprotected than they had. That's the perspective that we're supposed to, to get with that. Um, but here's, as we make sense of that, um, we're probably not going to do that today, right? I mean, even if we get scared, there's, the chances are of us taking our earrings and stuff off and making some, making a little statue or whatever uh, and worshiping it, bowing down or something like that, is, is not going to happen. We're not going to, we might go and sell our jewelry or a pawn shop because we might be sucking for cash, but we're not likely to, uh, to, to make uh, an idol out of our jewelry. But here's what we do in the Western cultures, very similar to what the Israelites did in the ancient Near East. Uh, our problem isn't physical, it's mental. We don't have a lot of physical images or idols, but we got a lot of mental ones. They're all up in our head. Calvin, uh, John Calvin and his, uh, his institutes, Institute of the Christian religion says this. He makes the comment that the mind is a workshop for idolatry. In other words, we think of, we think, we think of all these things about what God is like in our head, and we image them on the, not only on God, but on the world. And that's the facade by which we see how life works. Jonathan, I'm going to have you go back. Go back to that video. It shows uh, if you can find it. Check this out. Excuse me, can I ask you a question? What is God like? Um, God is powerful. He's almighty. He's, uh, he's everything. I don't know. When someone comes in handy, and when someone is looking for everything. Um, it's a good question. I don't know. Uh, have a little bit. Right. Anything else? Mm. He's a celestial being. He's not of this world. Infinite, eternal, immutable. What is God like? That's an unanswerable question. God is our loving God. He's our God of all. He's, he's my Savior. He's my Savior. He's big, he's huge, bigger than everything else. He's the creator of all things. Right, how about you? Um, I think he is loving, caring, and he disciplines us. He's the ultimate father. What is God like? There isn't the God. Well, that's really a tough one because I, you know, I've been drinking, but I'll tell you something. Um, I, I think God is, you can't describe it until you actually meet it. God is like everybody. Uh, who knows? <laughs> um, he gives me hope sometimes. And, um, yeah. 
But I'm afraid of Here's the thing about us. We take this idea of what God is like, and if we haven't been informed by the scripture, then we will make that up. And that's what some of these people have done. You hear the guys say, I've been drinking, but this is what I think God's like. (laughs) Can you imagine? Um, I mean, have you ever said that to yourself? I mean, what is God like? What is God like? A lot of us think that um, God is like this, and you, you can pick out the one that sticks, sticks for you. Some of us think that God is like the nice guy upstairs, and the nice guy upstairs is, is like grandpa. He's, he's distant. He doesn't know what's going on. He's really nice. So that it doesn't matter what we do, grandpa, because he's distant and doesn't know what's going to go on, um, part of it is that he just doesn't care, and part of it is just he has no capacity to even, to even care. Some of us have crafted a God like this. That's the image that we have of God. And that image comes from our mind, devoid of scripture. For some of us, we think of God like he's really harsh and critical, like a demanding father or or parent. God God is this raging Calvinist. He lacks love and he discriminately damns people to hell, the people that he doesn't like. Some of us have crafted a God like this. And then some of us have a God that's like Buddy Jesus. And here's Buddy Jesus. He's my friend. He doesn't let sin get in the way. He just wants to be my buddy. He wants to bless and endorse um, my lifestyle regardless of what I want to do. And so for Buddy Jesus, I can, I can be straight or gay. I can be left or right. I can really be whoever I want, and God's going to love me because he's a loving God. And why would God not want me to be who, who I really am? Which one of these sticks for you? Or, or perhaps you've added some other. That God is like, you know, how would you fill in the blank there? And I would beg to say, I would argue with you, all of these at least firstly take place in our mind. And the reason why I mention this is that we need to acknowledge that in our minds, we have a problem. And that's where the problem starts. In fact, most sins start in our problem. And our problem with our mind is one of deception. Turn right in your Bible to the book of Ephesians. This is a letter to, to the church at Ephesus from the Apostle Paul. And he speaks to this issue about us having minds that are not necessarily 100% pure. He says in verse 17, chapter 4, Now I say this and testify in the Lord, that you must, not, uh, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of your minds. They are darkened, your minds are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have, been, uh, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, to put that in context, Paul is basically saying our minds aren't as pure as we, we think they are. Now, if you're a, a, a non-believer, some that, some, a person that would say, I don't know God, I don't follow Jesus, I'm not a Christian, then Paul is describing you, particularly he's describing um, the things that go on in, in your own mind. Um, but on the other side of that, even if you follow Jesus, even if you... Um, say I'm a, I'm a Christian, the, the truth is God has given you a, a new heart. He's given you the Holy Spirit to be able to hear from God, and the Holy Spirit is, is conforming you to the image of Jesus, the Bible tells us. But there's also a part of us that's, that's always a part of us that because we live on this earth and our sin never stops, that's not submitted to, to God at all. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul calls that the flesh, that part of us that has yet yielded to God. And so really, this, here's the position that we're in. 
Believer or unbeliever, all of us wrestle at some level with the fact that our minds are not pure, that we are not corrupt. And this is what our corrupt mind does. It tries to put God in the box. It tries to imagine uh, God in our own image or likeness. I like food, right? That's why we're eating today, because I like food. And uh, I'm at this point in my life that uh, I exercise so that I can eat the food that I want. Like some of y'all are like that too, right? So um, you ever notice how we can, we can like have a full meal, go back for seconds, um, you're sitting in your chair and you like let out the, oh man, I'm full, I'm stuffed. But then somebody asks you, you want some dessert? And, and you and your craziness will want dessert. I mean, your body is telling you, don't do it. You know that Lecrae song? Don't do it. Don't do it. And your mind will tell you, we're going to have some dessert. (laughs) All right, so y'all are young people, but as you get older, your body starts talking to you. Your mind may tell you something different, but your body starts talking to you. So I grew up, I played tennis, I ran a little cross country. I've been through 20 years of the Army. I didn't have a pain in my body until two years after I got out of the Army. And then there's all this stuff that started jumping on me. It's like stuff starts breaking down. Back pain, knee pain, getting up out of the bed. like, oh, my gosh, how many times do I got to go pee? <laughs> you know, that's, that's too much information, right? <laughs> but here's the deal. Sometimes our body speaks to us and tells us things that our mind takes and it just turns over and sometimes it dismisses it and sometimes it gives a completely different rendition of what reality is telling you, whether it's our stomach or body or pain in our body. And you would think that we would listen to our minds sometimes, but we don't, even when our mind is telling us the truth. My point is, we like to think that our minds are totally, they're totally clear, they're totally pure, that they have our best intentions in, at heart. But here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that our minds deceive us. The Bible says that our biggest problem with this command is we allow our imaginations to shape what's true about God. And this is what God is doing way back in Exodus in the Old, in the old Covenant, Old Testament. In the second commandment, he is saying, don't do it. He's saying, don't imagine me. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't do it. Look at, look at this room. All right, so we're a, a Protestant evangelical church. And one of the tenets of our faith is that we don't have, we don't need, because God has said, images of God. The early church, they did not create statues of Jesus uh, or really any religious affectations in their worship. What do they have? They had the word. That's what Jesus was called. He was called the word. John 1, 1. Okay, in the beginning was, was God, and he was the word. Okay? So uh, the same thing applies to us. We're not supposed to put up a statue of Jesus. Really, we're not even supposed to put, the, I mean, the cross becomes a, a crux to us if we begin to put Jesus on it and, and we worship that. And that's one of the reasons why, you, I mean, you see nothing but curtains. We, we don't have a cross. We don't have things that we, um, that we would set our focus on because those, things, those good things oftentimes becomes God things. And so God says, don't do it. Don't bring me into your financial imagination. You can't put me into your right size box of your own choosing so that you can control me. He says, don't do it. You cannot put me into your back pocket so that you can pull me out when it's convenient. He says, don't do it. A couple quotables. Martin Luther was uh, the initiator of the Protestant Reformation. And speaking on this issue of the Second Commandment, he says, and people want to say, I believe what I'm doing will please and glorify God. But God does not allow us to tell him how he demands to be served. He has revealed to us in Scripture how he is to be served. J.I. Packer's contemporary uh, British living in Canada, uh, theologian and author, and he says this about the second commandment. He says the second commandment is against any statement that says, I like to think of God as. We just went over that. All those ways that we say God is like. That statement should never be trusted under any circumstances. And so here's the, here's the question for us. 
Why does God not want us to create physical or mental images of who he is? Uh, three reasons. We've already talked about the first. It reduces God. It, it reduces him from who he truly is. It takes God who's almighty in strength and perfect in holiness. It takes God who's fully just and infinite love, infinitely loving. It takes God who is transcendent above all the heavens, but also close and intimate to us in our hearts. And it reduces him to uh, a single attribute or at worst, uh, a, a static figure. God says, don't do that. There's two other ways. Uh, and I don't know if you ever thought about this. Here's what the Bible says. You and I, those of us who have come to faith and are following Jesus, we are the image of God. Honestly, in a certain way, even if you're not following Jesus, you were formed, created in the image of God. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us, not make, man, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's a lot of theology in here, but what, what I want to point out to you is, is particularly this. Um, we don't actually know what eternity is going to be like in terms of us being the image of God, but rudimentarily, this is what it means. God is a person. He's a person and he's made you persons and persons. We all have emotions and intellect and uh, the ability that wills, desire, the ability to make decisions and we can communicate. OK, and God has given us as persons part of his communicable attributes. We image God. Paul says it like this in Romans eight twenty nine. That those he called, he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So ultimately, God wants us to look like Jesus. Why is that? Because, and here's the third reason, third and final reason, Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. That's what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says. Show me Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.3 says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Here's what God wants us. He wants us to see he's, he's given everything he needs in terms of his image in the world. He's put that in us, but primarily he's put it in Jesus. Jesus is the image of of God. The invisible God has imaged himself in Jesus. And that's why we aren't to make images of God for ourselves. Now think about this. This is a this is a paradox, but it's absolutely true. There's all these kind of questions that we have about God that we want him to answer. We want him to answer questions like predestination. Why does God call some to salvation and just leaves others not? Why is if, if God is sovereign and controls everything, why is it that bad things still happen in our world? Uh, how does prayer work that sometimes I pray for stuff and I get an immediate answer? Sometimes I pray for stuff and I, I mean, I don't hear from God or anything. Nothing happens at all. Why in the world is there a hell? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? I mean, don't we want to know all those questions? We want to know about, I mean, why did he even give us the moral law to start with? These things are hard for us to understand. But here's the, here's the deal. We cannot imagine God. You cannot, because God is too big for you to put him in a box. There's no, we have no capacity in us whatsoever to completely define who an infinite, holy, majestic, out-of-this-world God is. We will never be able to come up with anything uh, about who God is except for what he declares himself to be. And I love this. God declares himself from heaven, and this is what he, this is what he offers us. He offers us an, not an opportunity to image him and, or create us in our likeness, create him in our likeness. He just says, believe. And obviously that's a faith thing. I'll conclude with this. The only answer to why this commandment is that God has imaged himself by sending Jesus to live amongst us. 
So God is saying, this is how you can know me without controlling me. This is how you can know me and personally relate to me. This is how you can know the true God. Here's how you can receive all of who I am without trying to fit me to accommodate your own lifestyle. This is how you can know me. How's that? Know Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, all these commands, uh, particularly this one, uh, are hard. They're hard for us because we violate them really without knowing that we're violating them because it's in us to, to do it. Or the Israelites, um, they felt unprotected and unsecure, and they were just trying to look out for themselves, and they did exactly what you said not to do. And in our own way, uh, we very much desire to craft you in our image and call you God. And so, Lord, we repent. And we pray that, God, that you give us courage and the wherewithal to see our error both in our words and in our ways and that you would turn us from our sin and help us turn to you. Lord, we marvel that you see all fit to um, create us in your image, that you would make us persons like yourself. And we look forward to an eternity where we will see the fruition of that, what it really means to be in the image, created and living in the image of a grand God. And so while we're on earth, Lord, help us to receive Jesus, who your word reveals to us is the image. He's the exact imprint of who you are. Let us love and serve and honor and worship Jesus. He is your image. And it's in that image and in his name that we pray. Amen.